thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team, today we are joined by Dr. Richard Maurer of The Blood Code. Richard joins The Real Food Real to teach you how to find the diet, fitness and nutritional steps for optimum health and longevity and all naturally. Hi Richard and thanks for joining the show. Hello, Steph. It's a pleasure to be here today. Really excited to chat with you. So we will talk about the blood code, obviously, but because you haven't been on the show before, I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and your background. Yes, thank you. Um, you know, my, my background, uh, when people come in my office, they're always a little surprised because my undergraduate degree and diploma on the wall uh, says that I'm a music performance major. So having played in music conservatory um, and uh, several symphony orchestras in my early 20s, um, I was leading down one path. But for fun, I was reading nutritional textbooks at the time. Uh, This was back in the late 1980s um, when nutritional textbooks were uh, for the most part, we're still talking the four basic food groups, but there was this uh, renegade group of providers, uh, Linus Pauling and Abram Hoffer, some of the uh, um, the people that were pioneering IV uses of nutrients and specific clinical diets. Um, again, when I look back on it, they were way ahead of their time. Um, since then, For the past over 30 years now, I've been asking the question, what is a healthy diet? What is a healthy diet? I have a busy clinical practice uh, here in the States, in uh, Portland, Maine. Um, And I've stopped asking the question in the past several years, what is a healthy diet? I've really asked the question, what is it that makes this person in front of me thrive? And that's forced me to personalize, find that way of personalizing the the diet, the exercise that we all pursue and help us. How do we each find that um, that specific diet that allows us to kind of find our ancestral health, wellness, vitality? And that ultimately led me to writing my first book, The Blood Code, um, yeah, I think that's a really fantastic example of, you know, how I guess obviously we have our own ideals of what real food looks like or what the perfect diet is, but there's many examples where that might not work for someone. I think that can be the first lesson where individualization becomes so important. That's right, Steph. And and I've looked over um your work, and I know many of your listeners are familiar with lower carbohydrate, high fat uh, lifestyles and diet. And, um, you know, I'm a product, again, of the sort of of the 80s, where I was told the healthiest thing to do was to be eating a vegetable based, lower fat diet. And boy, I did that to such a great degree, I was virtually macrobiotic. And um, 
my blood sugars climbed and I was losing weight and uh, my cholesterol was extraordinarily low, which made some doctors say, isn't that great? Um, but to be in your mid-20s and be losing weight and have a testosterone of a 75-year-old at 24 um, didn't make me feel like I was on the right path. Um, it took a, a Chinese medical doctor at one point taking my pulse, and he shook his head. Just feeling my pulse, he shook his head from side to side and said, oh, no, no, you need a more pork. <laughs> and it was Dr. Cho. I was doing my master's in acupuncture at the time uh, at night while going to a naturopathic medical school um, for four years. And um, I looked at him like he was crazy. You need more pork. Are you kidding me? That's not the way I've been directed. Um, it it took several years to really uh, embody Dr. Cho's recommendations and understand what he meant by that. Uh, almost metaphor of you need more pork. And it was really an explanation of what it is to balance out my persona. He, he did it without blood tests. He was doing it based on traditional Chinese medical uh, observation. Um, you know, I, I've gravitated more towards using Western medical language and the language of blood tests um, also confirms that uh, apparently I, you know, to continue with that metaphor i do thrive on a little bit more pork <laughs> it is a great metaphor so tell us was it your own health um experiences that led you to change your i guess career from your initial um mu music focus you know it it was i was not um of course i was never unhealthy I was always uh, scrawny and a little anxious and very aerobic. So for me, you know, from a family of marathon runners, it was not hard for any of us to go out and run for an hour. Um, you know, ultimately that did not, it doesn't create the healthiest body, that kind of exercise. Um, it took really till my early 40s when I was still exercising regularly and, um, I saw my blood sugars, my hemoglobin A1C started climbing up. I was in the mid-pre-diabetic. I was halfway to type 2 diabetes in my blood sugar measurements. And I was a thin, what everyone would say is healthy person with probably the best diet in terms of Western medical conservative language. I was eating the Mediterranean diet. Um, and that's when it really shocked me that even though I thought I had learned what I needed to learn, I still wasn't on the right track for me. And, you know, my mother was type 2 diabetic at 60 years old. And uh, at around 72, 73, she finally grabbed the bull by the horns and said, enough of that. And she grabbed a trainer and she really grabbed the low carb, high fat diet uh, in full force and at nearly 80 years old, she still shows no type 2 diabetes in her blood work. Um, so seeing it through my family, seeing it express in myself, uh, forced me to address my diet and change how I exercised too. It wasn't just that I had to give up my sourdough toast and jam in the morning. It's that I had to stop going out for five mile runs and calling that my exercise. I you know, I built more of those 
sort of ambitious 20-minute circuits into my life. So I was doing strength building, weight training, um, using many more muscle groups and building a little bit more muscle mass and power. And while that also has me feeling better and stronger and fitter, it's also lowered my blood sugar from uh, in U.S. numbers from 6.1%, which is about equivalent to a 43 millimole per mole. If people are using the, I think in Australia, um, you'll use the international indexes. Um, but in the U.S., that was from a 6.1% hemoglobin A1C. Now I'm down to the normal range, which is 57 or less. Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, our listeners are pretty familiar with at least HbO1c, but um, we will have to be mindful of some of the other units when we chat um, to our Australian listeners. But I guess that's a really fascinating example because we do have a lot of marathon runners. So uh, there are probably some um, some people that aren't really happy to hear that it's, that's perhaps not the most healthiest form of exercise when, you know, it's almost the assumption that if someone can ran, run a marathon that they must be healthy when really it's fit but not healthy perhaps. The, you're touching on a subject that I think in the past 10 years has um, has really been enticing and exciting for those of us in metabolic research and metabolic healthcare. Um, there, there has just been uh, a tremendous volume of, of, of well-designed research looking at um, aerobic athletics versus circuits versus very, very short circuits. You know, we've all seen the headlines about four-minute workouts and seven-minute workouts. And uh, while some of those are a little overrated, you know, no one's going to become an athlete at four to seven minutes a day. Mm-hmm. The, um, the fact is there's more truth than error in those headlines there. The answer is that to find our, our health and longevity, it really can be packaged in these small bursts. And we probably do better to exercise like our young children naturally play, you know, the go until you can't rest until you can adage of um, aerobic interval training or high intensity interval work. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating topic. And obviously, we're talking about the individualization. So surely it doesn't mean that marathons are bad for everyone? Or is that what you're saying? No, not at all. Mm. So what I look for is, um, well, if we can, that question, Steph, thank Mm. you. But uh, it's going to lead us into a little bit of um, blood test results. Sure. So uh, I agree. Let's start from the top. (laughs) Let's do that because I think um, what I do with every athlete I see in my office is I run a couple of blood tests. And I'm going to simplify things for today so that at least um, at least your listeners can have uh, an actionable step um, to take right off. Great. The um, first one I would run is very simply, it's just the lipid panel, that triglyceride HDL ratio. Mm -hmm. And I see many long distance runners where they're running with a triglyceride that is too low, meaning they're their endurance activities are causing them to break down. They're becoming catabolic, right? Their their muscle tissues are starting to destroy themselves for energy. I'll just interrupt Um, you there, actually, because I think this is a really fantastic topic because it's also what you were talking about with your own personal experience about your cholesterol being low 
and you were almost applauded for that. And I think we're so used to hearing total cholesterol and drinks um, where high is bad that low must must mean good when really it's a bell curve. Very right. Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. you know, the lower the better. Obviously, if you, you know, we take that to things like blood pressure, you know, sure, lower blood pressure is better than higher, but too low and you're passing out in front of the traffic that you're trying to Absolutely. walk across. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a low triglyceride means you don't have any of those fats to utilize as energy between meals. Mm-hmm. When you wake up in the morning after fasting overnight, you are catabolic. You are destroying your your muscle tissue, your white blood cells, your neurotransmitters, those proteins that should be going to build a stronger, better functioning human, they're being burned to utilize as energy. That's obviously self-defeating. So a, a very simple proxy for this physiology, the, the simple test I use to see whether this is happening is that triglyceride HDL ratio. And so a triglyceride, um, uh, I use, I'll, I'll give the U.S. Uh, term, I, 40 to 100 is the normal range. I don't want to see it below 40. I don't want to see it above 100. In the international ranges, that is 0.45 to 1.1 yeah. uh, millimole per liter. So once it goes below 0.45, I'm going to raise my, little red flag saying Mm. you're in a low triglyceride state you're only as good as your next meal you know this is you're very close to becoming catabolic and that will require either some carbohydrate backloading someone might actually need more carbohydrates to build some of those fat reserves um or someone is overtraining for me my triglyceride was very very low i was essentially just too thin. I wasn't building enough, uh, enough protein, eating enough fat. I was creating a, um, a very catabolic state in my body by not taking in enough of the foods my body thrived on. So my triglyceride was low. I actually built more muscle mass and took in a little more protein and fat. I can't go too low in my carbohydrates. Um, you know, I keep it, well, it's still very low. I'm at about 50 grams of carbohydrate a day, give or take 10 or 20. Um, so, I mean, that is still quite low. So where were you prior to um, that when, you, when your ratios were quite low? Uh, when they were off, I was actually on a much higher. Oh, um, okay. Oddly enough, I was eating uh, a much more glycogenic diet. So I was at around 150 to 200 grams of protein a day. Um, the American Diabetic Association considers 150 to be the beginning of a low carbohydrate diet. So just for reference, uh, for your listeners, you know, when we're talking the ranges, putting people from 40 grams a day to 60, 80 grams a day, we often think of that as much higher carbohydrate intake, but this is all in the relative range of low carbohydrate. Yes, I understand. So for you, it was the training that was influencing those levels to be catabolic, that was obviously. Exactly it. It, was, it was too long an exercise mm. for what my body thrived on. So I was breaking down protein after, after 40 minutes of activity aerobically. I was just destroying protein. 
Yeah. And, and unfortunately, I think there's a lot of people that would be um, probably have eating too low carbohydrate and overtraining. So, you know, exacerbating exactly the problem. That's exactly what I see. Absolutely. So that triglyceride being low, we have a low point. So I, I set that bar. And if people are below, certainly below 0.4 millimole per liter, that's going to be too low. Your body really needs those fats to burn between meals. Um, and that's where a higher carbohydrate intake will push that up a little bit. Yeah. Typically, when the triglyceride goes too high, the HDL will often drop. So this is where if someone's gaining weight and they're more sedentary um, and they need more exercise, I'll see this high triglyceride, one that uh, is well above 1.1 or 1.0 millimole per liter. So that's where um, – they're in an anabolic state, right? They're, they're storing more fat than their body really needs to be carrying around. So what's and the solution for that? Mm. Ironically, I see a lot of marathon runners in this range. Because the activity of marathon running is such a glycogenic activity, right? It, 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 it thrives on burning glucose through glycogen release. That, that activity, that long-distance aerobic event... Um, doesn't necessarily effectively burn fat as energy. So we tend to have people still, um, you know, the term is the skinny fat. So somebody who's uh, using the goose and they're trying to do glucose replacements um, with their marathon running or any long distance activity, whether it's cycling or tri training. Um, if someone's in athletic condition like that, there's no way their triglyceride should be above even one millimole, right? It just, it just shouldn't be there. You should be in a fit, lean state. So if I see it above, I'll scratch my head. I'll say, this is odd. You know, this, why are you in such an anabolic state, yet your exercise should put you in a more balanced, leaner um, catabolic condition? Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree with you. I think skinny fat is a term that we joke about really, but it is a huge example of, I definitely think, you know, the conventional sports nutrition model where carbohydrates are king and more often than not, that athlete is overtraining, trying to stick to a cookie cutter training program that doesn't suit them. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, and interestingly, the way I corrected, um, at the same time, I corrected my A1C and brought that down from halfway to diabetes back into normal range. I gained about a little over 10 pounds um, and ended up at the end of the day, I ended up just as lean as I was. So really that gain of muscle mass was what my body needed to be in a healthier, metabol healthier metabolic state. Yeah, fascinating. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not striving for the best 10K or half marathon time, I'm striving at this point as I'm approaching my 50th birthday, I'm striving for health and longevity. So the exercise and activities I do, I want to help that process. I want to feed that uh, extraordinarily healthy, fit um, body that should take me the, take me the distance. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's got to always be about health. So just yeah. a couple of questions. With triglycerides, Obviously, we know there's, you know, quite a significant day-to-day -day variation. So 
how does that influence your interpretation of the triglycerides to HDL ratio? You know, that's a good point. The fact is you're fasting. I'm doing this after a 10 hour at least fast. Mm. And for fasting triglyceride HDL, it doesn't vary from day to day. Mm. That really is your baseline uh, storage. It's it's a nice little measure of um, catabolism and anabolism, right? It's that interface between how much you're breaking down and how much you're storing in terms of your energy reserves. Wonderful little snapshot. Mm. Um, you know, if the HDL triglyceride I use, again, I'm not going to talk about the triglyceride HDL ratio as much because um, I could, if, if people want to visit um, uh, on the blood code website, I do have a calculator which converts from uh, international units, the millimole per liter, into the milligrams per deciliter. Um, and when you do the conversion and get it into U.S. units, we use the certain ranges of um, – we want that ratio of triglyceride to HDL to be one-to-one. -one. Mm. Your body never wants it less than 0.5. So even someone very athletic on U.S. units, uh, if I have a triglyceride of 50, which would be equivalent of 0.5 millimoles, I want to see that HDL – no higher than uh, about 100. Um, and I'm not going to be quick at converting that to millimoles. It requires a times 89. Um, so that ratio, if someone wants to convert to milligrams per deciliter, we should be 0.5 to 1.5. And any athlete listening, when they look at their triglyceride HDL, once converted, it should be on the leaner side. You know, it should be on the 0.5 to 1. You know, you should be on the catabolic side of normal. Yeah, I and agree. That's, and that's running a lean, you know, you've got a lean pantry. There's there's only a, a few days of food stored in the cabinets. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the ratio that we, we obviously use in Australia is definitely looking at the 0.45 to 1 range. So I think that's probably mm -hmm. the most important point out of the triglyceride to HDL ratio. So certainly our listeners can so. start with that blood lipid panel and mm -hmm. work out their triglyceride to HDL ratio and, um, you know, make the modifications if they're either side of that 0.45 to 1. Yes. And then, the you know, if we want to take this one step back, once someone knows their triglycerides and perhaps it's someone who's lean and exercising long distance aerobic and their triglyceride is high. So they're scratching their head saying, how is this happening? Um, or if someone's too low and they're saying, boy, I thought I was doing the right low carb, high fat diet. The next hormone they need to look at is the insulin level. And that's again, off that fasting blood draw that, that fasting serum insulin. If it's, too low, let's say it's below 18 p-mole per liter. Um, that means your body's not doing a, it doesn't have a lot of insulin. So it's not turning sugar into fat. It's not storing sugar as glycogen. It's also not pushing protein, amino acids into cells well. So you're a little compromised in your recovery, your muscular recovery after workouts. Uh, now, again, this is a fasting insulin. Every time we eat, it goes up. 
So we're getting this baseline. Some people have pancreases that produce extraordinary amounts of insulin, and some people don't. So it's helpful to know whether you're the high insulin secretor or not. Um, you know, someone who's secreting a high level of insulin, it'll be greater than 50 uh, picomoles per liter. And so what does that mean? <laughs> that means they're very, they have a great anabolic potential. Mm. The fact is, these are usually people struggling with their weight. Yeah. Right? Anyone who has high insulin, their sugar will often be fine. If they're, if they're under the age of 50 or 60, their high insulin is keeping their blood sugar great, which is why their primary care doctor's never picking up on a pre-diabetic pattern, never picking up on the fact that there's insulin resistance because the sugar always looks fine. But it looks fine because the insulin is doing an incredible job of turning that sugar into fat. It's storing it under the skin. It's storing it in the liver. That, that fat's just getting stored wherever your body can stash it. So very helpful if someone's struggling with their weight gain to know the insulin and see whether that insulin is above, above 50. So just on that then, so with the blood sugars, are you talking about like a conventional diagnosis of say under six millimole per liter? And maybe um, that's sort of, I guess, signed off as normal? Yeah, so I'm using a little narrower range, yeah. and I'm using 4.2 to 5.3. Yeah, okay. You know, I so, use a 75 to 95, so it's not below 6. I really want to see it, um, you know, certainly below 5.5, 5.4. So I'm with you, but what I was referring to is, say, that that client that is, say, finding it hard to lose weight and maybe their insulin hasn't been checked but their yeah. doctor's not picking that up because their sugars are quote-unquote normal. Yes. So would that even be in the case of someone that's got a 5.3? Yes, blood sugar? absolutely. Mm. A 5.3, uh, anytime I see a 5.3, 5.4, 5.5, I'm, I'm opening my eyes and I always want to see that insulin. Okay. Because if someone's on that higher side of normal for their blood glucose, but their insulin is uh, way above 50. I, I might see an insulin of, uh, 80, 90, a hundred, which means the sugar's not higher just because the body's turning it into fat so readily. You can expect 99% of the time that person's going to have high triglycerides. You know, and they're really going to be just, you ask them their life history and they'll say, Oh, I've always struggled with my weight. Um, you know, since I was a teenager, um, very common in my practice, what I see is these people made extraordinary athletes in high school. I think they were triple varsity athletes and they never got sick and they built strength and they were just great performers. And then they went to school, sat down, got a desk job and, they gained 30, 40 pounds. So what do you think a HbA1c would be in a person like this? The HbA1c is totally normal in a person like this. I know someone like this. Yes, that's right. <laughs> the A1c is fine. Again, why? Because the 
every time that person eats, their pancreas produces triple insulin, which prevents the sugar from ever going up. Mm. So remember, insulin resistance is not just based upon the glucose number. It's based upon the dynamic, that dynamis, between the anabolic and catabolic reactions in the body. So it's really the dynamic between how well we take those sugars and either store them or burn them. Yeah, absolutely. And how, we, how well we burn those fats or store those fats. So let's talk about this this person. <laughs> so <laughs> That's great. Just Bring to recap. Yeah, yeah. So higher than normal blood glucose, insulin above 50, um, but a normal HbA1c. Um, how do they lose weight? I do bring them to, uh, of course, a very low carbohydrate diet. How many grams per day? I'm keeping them under 40 grams a day. I okay. use sort of a very low at breakfast because we have that dawn phenomenon, which releases sugar naturally. Okay. So five to 10 grams at breakfast and then 10 to 20 at lunch, 10 to 20 at dinner. Um, one of the important foods to avoid is the food that causes the most extraordinary release of insulin, and that is dairy products. I was about to say milk. <laughs> exactly. And that makes sense, right? From, from the day we're born to six months, a pediatrician uses a metric to check the health of the child. And the healthy children will double their body weight, double their birth weight, by six months or earlier. And that is typically on only one food. Mm, of course. Mother's milk. So we've evolved to have an extraordinary growth response to dairy products. And that's not just from the dairy sugar lactose, but also to all the dairy proteins. Several of the proteins, both globulins and lactobumins, cause big growth responses. Obviously, weight builders and bodybuilders, uh, weightlifters and bodybuilders, they know this, right? They're using whey protein very regularly as an enhancement to build body mass. Um, but someone who's struggling with their weight probably shouldn't be eating two, three ounces of cheese a day <laughs> for the same reason. So I avoid those, uh, bring the low-carb diet, remove those dairy sugars and dairy proteins, obviously butter and creme are fine because there's no sugar or protein to speak of. Um, and then I make sure that person's doing the kind of exercise that lowers insulin. 45 minutes on a treadmill does a great job of lowering blood sugar, but it does not lower insulin. So aerobic activity is typically brushed aside and that person really needs to do more weight training, more yeah. circuit training, something that engages many, many muscle groups and is challenging where eight to 10 reps of the activity put them at their max. You know, if they can do 20, I need to put them in a posture or increase the weight so that 10 becomes their new max. And I'll string together several of those exercises, <laughs> even if it lasts only 10, 12 minutes. That's what they need to do on a regular basis. But that's the best news ever. I mean, imagine thinking that you had to do an hour on the treadmill every day to lose weight like we did in the 80s. Like, that's just depressing, whereas weight training can be so time efficient. It's just not familiar to everybody that it can be sort of, I guess, the last thing they attempt almost. Is that your experience? 
You're speaking my gospel, Steph. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a great study where um, I'll recap it and certainly abbreviate it, but it was six days a week of exercise, and they took overweight uh, pre-diabetics, and um, they gave one group a uh, control group and said, don't do anything. Just stay your pattern. They gave another group um, 25 minutes on a treadmill or exercise bike, depending on their physical capabilities. Um, and that was at 70% of their maximum heart rate, you know, standard aerobic recommendations. They gave another group a 25 minute circuit training workout and told that group on the days you can't do it. If you don't have 25 minutes, just put an X in the box and you're going to, we're going to mark you on what you've done on the fourth group. They gave that same 25-minute workout, and they said, on the days you don't have time, here's a four-minute workout. And it was an ambitious circuit that only lasted four minutes. And they said, do this on the days you don't have time. What was staggering is weight loss, triglyceride drop, HDL gains, uh, blood pressure corrections, blood sugar drops were virtually equal in the people that did four minutes four of the six days versus the people that did 25 minutes all six days. To recap it, it's, you know, four minutes is really, really effective for so many people if it's the right kind of exercise. And of course, the aerobic group actually had a little drop in their blood pressure, but had no change in their blood sugar and, um, the other findings like HDL increases and triglyceride drops were not significant. Yeah. It's such so, a good example though. I might link to that study in the show notes if you could share that with me because I will dig that back up. It's one of my just really, I, I quote that to my clients regularly to remind them that all I'm asking. And I, I think the fact that they used four minutes was brilliant um, because many of us, if it said six minutes, we wouldn't do it. Cause right. That's more than five. Uh, I don't know. I think it's a small price to pay to, you know, get that longevity back. But I've exercised all my life, so I can appreciate that it's foreign to, to others. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that we, we reiterate the type of exercise that can completely improve that blood lipid panel. So, yeah, cut the duration but focus on, you know, maximizing muscle recruitment and lifting heavy. That's it. And I have in the in the blood code, I, I talk about the four fitness principles. Um, so when I need to lower someone's insulin, there's four basic principles. One is you need to approach your exercise on an empty stomach. Mm -hmm. And and that means make sure it's been at least uh, an hour or two since your prior meal. Don't fuel yourself before your workout. You want your insulin low going into that workout. The other is your heart rate should vary throughout the workout. This isn't a continuous exercise. This is something that has burst and moments of recovery. And then the other two are it has to involve lots of muscle groups at one time. So there's no exercise I recommend really where someone is sitting on a machine. Right? Everything is standing up and doing um, rows with a dumbbell in a squat something where the, the glutes and the quads and the core are all involved with this arm activity. Um, and the fourth principle in the blood code is 
it should be strenuous for you. Mm. Right. And that, and that I mark with that eight to 10 repetitions. You should be going into your brain, trying to figure out how to get those last two reps out of yourself. Right. You have to have a trick to get you there. If it's very easy to do the 10, something has to switch to make that a little more challenging. Yes. Completely agree. And of course the, when someone says, boy, but that's really hard. Yes. But it's only four minutes on the day you don't have time. Uh, it's it's ex- the, the the message to me is quite liberating. And you know what's harder? Diabetes. <laughs> you speak the truth. <laughs> Beautiful. So I wanted to um, switch topics a little bit. I'd love to talk to you more about thyroid health. I know that in the blood code, one of your um, suggested blood panels is the thyroid discovery panel. Can you talk more That's about right. that, please? I can. You know, I I have to say when writing when writing the blood code, I had a content editor early on in the process and she took all the pages of my thyroid section out and said, I think this is a separate book. Um and I took it out and I started writing the book and about a month later I had to put it back in. And And here's why, you know, when I look at someone with insulin resistance, if someone has that weight problem or the prediabetes or their triglycerides creeping up, um, a much higher percentage of them are hypothyroid. And of people that have hypothyroid, a much higher percentage of them actually have insulin resistance. They're blaming their their weight problems and their low energy on their thyroid when actually – it's their oatmeal for breakfast that's causing them to be crashing. So, so I had to put it back in. And if I take this to a sort of primal ancestral health language, right? Insulin resistance, that, that person who's storing too much, that's a case of, you know, ancestrally being able to get more out of your food, right? You're extracting, you're storing more from what you just acquired, Thyroid and hypothyroidism is about using less, right? It's a very thrifty trait where someone burns less energy at rest, not in activity. So when someone's in the middle of a circuit workout, whether they're hypothyroid or not, two people are burning the same, metabolically, the same calorie, the same burn. But at rest, say, after a night's sleep, the person with hypothyroid has really turned down the volume. They're, they're, they're burning less energy at a cellular level. So I think when someone's struggling with um, insulin resistance or prediabetic patterns or low energy or weight gain, very important to look at those thyroid numbers. And yes, in the blood code, I talk about the full panel, which is the TSH, the free T4, and the free T3. And seeing all three of those together, I also, in the thyroid discovery panel I mentioned, I also like to see the antibodies. Mm. At least once in someone's life, right? That thyroperoxidase antibody. If it's very high, it means the likelihood that you'll develop hypothyroidism in the future is also quite high. And if it's very low and the other numbers are normal, 
I'm going to push that aside. I'm going to say, okay, the thyroid is not your problem. Um, and as you know, if you go online, uh, boy, the internet can sure make it sound like the thyroid is everyone's problem. (laughs) You know, uh, so, you know, using a blood test to really extract whether that, that thrifty trait is in you or not is extremely valuable. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's, it's obviously not everyone's problem, but it's still the master regulator of our metabolism and energy production. So obviously imbalances can cause a lot of problems. So can you share a little bit about some reference ranges or some optimal levels that you like to see? Sure. I So in the thyroid, um, if we start with the first one, and I know in the States, virtually every primary care doctor, when they're going to review thyroid, the first test and virtually the only test they'll do is the TSH, right? That thyroid stimulating hormone. And the optimal range is uh, 0.4 to 4. In the blood code, that's really what I use. Some labs will use up to 6. Uh, we want to see it in that 0.4 to 4. Um I will always correct myself when I'm talking about thyroid and remind us that it isn't the master regulator of our metabolism. It's the master regulator of our basal metabolism, Mm, right, of our resting metabolic rate. Because as soon as someone's in a real, you know, vigorous workout and for many, many hours after that, that activity is the master regulator of their metabolism. It's very true. Um, so, you know, when people, people start to feel victim to their thyroid function and there is a way out, um, it it is not a, a a victim role that needs to be played out. Um, the TSH will often go up. So when it goes high, it indicates a hypothyroid condition. It, It indicates that that high part of the brain, the pituitary gland, is asking for more from the thyroid gland. So if that TSH is up, we have to scratch our heads and say, why is the brain asking for more from that basal metabolic rate? We know that people who are pre-diabetic, high insulin and that sugar is starting to push against the insulin, that TSH will go up but separate of their hypothyroid. So if I see a borderline hypothyroid where their TSH is 4.0, maybe 5.0 UIU per ml, that's, it's the same range for um, US versus uh, international units. Um, If it's ranging in that 0.4 to to, uh, 4 to 5 on the high end, I'm not going to treat very quickly. The first thing I'm going to do is optimize their diet, nutrition, their activity so that they no longer express insulin resistance. And then I'm going to recheck it. And what I've seen over and over again is people that normally would have been prescribed thyroid hormone at a functional doc's office no longer need it. Um, The other two ranges are that free T4 and the free T3. And that's that um, these are slightly different ranges. I'll use the uh, Australian and the international range, which is um, the T4 is I'm using in free, not total. The free T4 is uh, 11.6 to 22 picomoles per liter. So 
that range is sort of what your thyroid is actually producing. 90% of the T4 we measure in the body is what your thyroid is producing. Unless you're supplementing or taking a thyroid hormone by prescription, in which case now you're measuring the effect of that too because typical pills of levothyroxine sodium are nothing but T4. T3 is your body. So your body actually converts T4 to T3. 90% of what we measure in the blood for free T3 levels are what's being converted at the cellular level in your muscles and in your bone and in your gut. And that's that, that range of um, uh, 0, sort of 0 0.03, 0.035 up to 0 0.06 up to maybe even 0 0.065 picomoles per liter. One of the things I'll see here, Steph, and I'll, I'll toss it to you because some of your listeners are uh, highly athletic. One of the first signs of overtraining is when the free T3 drops. So when I see a free T3 level below 0 0.035, so they're at 0 0.03 or below 0 0.03, yet their T4 looks fine and their TSH looks fine, I'm going to assume they are overtraining, which I also correct my athletes. And while I say overtraining, I always correct it and say, there is no such thing as overtraining. You know, if I could get you to train eight hours a day, seven days a week, I would do it. The problem is under recovery. Right? The, the, the real issue is that you're not recovering for the amount of activity you're demanding of yourself. Can you just so hopefully that's not too much thyroid uh, talk for your listeners, uh, Steph. Um, but uh, that's sort of a quick review of how I think of that TSH, free T4, free T3. No, I think that's excellent. Process. I just wanted you to clarify the, the reference ranges for, three, for free T3. Because we mm -hmm. use um, picomole per liter, mm -hmm. but I'm talking sort of between 5 and 6.5 as being optimal. So I'm just trying to figure out what, if you're talking in a different um, measurement unit. Boy, usually what, so what we use in our, uh, in the U.S. ranges is uh, 2.3 to 4.2 uh, picograms per milliliter, uh, you know, PG per ml. Mm -hmm. So I'm using that 2.3 as my sort of master gauge of what T3 is when it's too low. So 2.3, I want to see that higher. If someone's 75, 80 years old, it's not uncommon to see that go down to 2.0 to go to a lower reference range. And most labs will adjust that reference range um, with age. I need to clarify with the P mole per L um, I have it as 0 0.03. Tell me what you use as your typical free T3. Uh, we have, yeah, it's P mole per litre, um, but we're looking in the fives. And that is for free T3, not total T3? Yeah. So I'm just a little bit confused. Um, like 5 to 6.5 is optimal. Very good. Um so I'm not sure what reference ranges you're talking about in the zero point. Um, you mentioned, yeah, zero point zeros. Yes, I'm going to um, piece that together again. My my world is so often. This is a, a quick number I have in front of me here. Um, 
That's okay. But before then, you were talking yeah, about two point three to something else that I think might be the reference range that we're referring to. Right. I'm using PG per ml for that. Okay. Um, and again, this is a uh, I'm uh, I'm quickly like like your listeners should be doing when they're um, converting certain things. Um, whether it's someone from the U.S. listening and trying to convert, um, there are plenty of uh, websites. I do this for the triglyceride, HDL, and insulin levels um, on the bloodcode.com in the calculators section. And every lab site has these um, conversion uh, calculators as well. So I'm uh, putting that together. And perhaps while we're putting this podcast together, isn't the best time, but um, perhaps in your show notes, I can clarify this. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, That's fine. We'll put some reference three. range. And mm. um, uh, you may be, what you're talking about, if you're using the 5.5 to 6.5, um, I can see the where there's a decimal point change. So either I'm looking at a micro mole per liter or uh, per mil, um, Perhaps mm. the difference, right? I'm I'm looking at this off uh, a couple points. Um, what you mentioned, if that's true, that's a pretty high optimal range, and that presumes that high T3 is better than middle to low T3. And most ex most extreme athletes will be on the low side. Yeah. So I never want to push that 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 a higher metabolism is healthier. Actually, what's better is those endurance athletes, the re and especially the studies putting uh, elite swimmers into different temperature pools and having them swim at 100% of their maximum uh, output uh, for 30, 40 minutes. When they do that in a, um, a warmer pool versus a moderate temperature pool, their free T3 levels stay low for over 24 hours. Because they generated so much heat during that exertion, their body is creating a basal cool-down period, right? It's, it's surviving by it's, – it's improving your recovery by preventing you from burning excessive calories after that extreme event. Yeah, that so, makes sense. Mm. So always catching that, you know, the um, – it seems like, again, most headlines that – refer to the word metabolism on the internet will always use speed up your before it you know how do you get your metabolism going faster when talking to athletes it's totally appropriate to have that basal metabolic rate slower because their active metabolic rate is faster it's higher yeah, obviously so, to prioritize recovery as well, which is it's so exactly it. Mm. Prioritizing recovery and the low free T3 is totally normal. Um, and I have to really evaluate what someone is doing at the time um, and understand it. And again, with that hot temperature exertion, boy, free T3 levels will stay low for a while. Yeah, fascinating. Mm. We'll clarify those reference ranges and I'll pop those in the show notes. So no problems at all with that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So I'd love for you to take our listeners to where they can find out more about the blood code and certainly how they can unlock the secrets to their metabolism. Great. You can uh, certainly follow on uh, Twitter at, um, that is to me, at Dr. Richard Maurer. You know, it's Facebook blood code and any bookstore, it is uh, iBooks, Google Books and Amazon. Um, and they're all carrying the, the blood code um, the blood code book. Uh, if someone does sign up for the newsletter, 
at the blood code website that will, um, give you the first, uh, 99 pages. It's a hundred page booklet ebook from, uh, from the blood code. And that allows you to really look at those lab analyses, lab parameters, and better understand whether you're in that state of storage or burning to excess. You know, we're, we're all looking for the sweet spot of health and vitality and we want our metabolism to match it. And, um, you know, being, a from a family of, uh, thin long distance athletes that, uh, had a propensity for diabetes. Um, I'm always cautious about profiling what's what we look like on the outside and assuming that's what's going on on the inside. So really taking that blood test uh, panel, and if you've had one done from your doctor, don't get the report. Get the actual results. You know, open up the blood code and try to understand them and really see whether you're uh, your outside activities are uh, benefiting your inner world of metabolism, health, and longevity. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fantastic resource, and I'm sure we'll have a lot of our listeners digging up their old reports to analyze them with new eyes. So thank you for sharing your knowledge. Head to the bloodcode.com team to find out more. And thanks again for coming on the show, Richard. Steph, it's a pleasure to chat, and uh, I look forward to hearing any comments from you or your listeners, and we'll clarify some of these things in the notes for you. Yeah, perfect. Sounds great. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter, The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts. Damo, do you want the first and only certified organic bone broth in Australia? Do you want a broth with no hidden thickeners, yeast extract, salt or flavour enhancers? MP, I want a broth made by hand from start to finish with nothing but love and positive vibes. Well, that's why you're left with only one broth, Damo, and that is Broth of Life. Ho, ho, ho. Choose from dehydrated bone broth in chicken, beef and lamb. You'll also find FODMAP-friendly stock. That's FODMAP-friendly stock, veggie stock and chicken salt, all available at brothoflife.com.au. And a special for Wellness Couch listeners. Enter the code WellnessCouch2016 at the checkout before November 30 for 10% off your order. So awesome. The code again is wellnesscouch2016, only at brothoflife.com.au.